Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. You've just seen and heard the Corgis at number 13, if I had you. This is ABBA. It's a double A side, and the one side we've played for you is Boulet Vaux. Without cutting back to power, we get another digital effect, this time one that looks like a fly being unzipped. And the pants revealed therein contain voulez-vous by ABBA. We've covered ABBA many a time and off, and this, their 15th single release in the UK, is the follow-up to Does Your Mother Know, which got to number four for three weeks in May of this year. Uniquely for the UK, it's their first and only double-A side paired with Angel Eyes. But as the band only shot a video for Voulez-Vous, it's become the de facto A-side on top of the pops. It was written by Benny and Bjorn in the Bahamas, and the band immediately decamped to Criteria Studios in Miami, where the Bee Gees did all their disco records, to record it with assistance from a local band called Foxe, who had a US dance hit the year before, and whose drummer was the son of Tito Puente, making it the only ABBA song to be recorded outside of Sweden. Wow. It's the third and fourth cut of their six LP of the same name, which came out in April, went straight to number one, stayed there for four weeks, and is currently at number 10 in the album charts. However, when Angel Eyes was featured on Jukebox Jura, it was unanimously voted a miss by the panel, which consisted of Alan Freeman, Elaine Page, Joan Collins and Johnny Rotten. (laughs) But it entered the chart at number 48 three weeks ago, then soared 25 places to number 23. And this week it's up from number 12 to number five. Now then, chaps, you could say that there was always a dance element to Abba's music. (laughs) Uh, uh, But this is clearly their first serious grab of the disco arse, what with recording in America and everything. Well... They're kind of in in their sort of future disco mode by now because in '76 mm. you had Dancing Queen and that was a more organic kind of lightweight George McRae type of disco. Yes. But this is your thumping Giorgio Moroder yeah. style stuff. You can totally imagine Donna Summer singing this. Actually, mm. I would say mm. you can imagine this being a single uh, somewhere in between Bad Girls and Hot Stuff. Uh, you yes. know, the the only giveaway this ABBA is that the, it's the close harmonies. But apart from that, it, it's very Moroder. Um, mm. And obviously it precedes Gimme, 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 A Man After Midnight, which is in a similar vein. Yes. So, yeah, uh, I, I think this is a badass record. I really do. It's just, yes. you know, I, I, I know that ABBA are forever associated with camp and they haven't done themselves any favours with the Mamma Mia musical and film, mm. which has just kind of cemented that kind of angle on, on what they are. But around this time, they were making serious music. This is really good. They, they're entering yeah. a phase, probably their best phase around mm. this time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I know it's obligatory to have a pop at David Stubbs whenever we talk about yes. ABBA. But I'm going to do it because he is Britain's, do it. He's, he's Britain's leading ABBA sceptic. How <laughs> can he dislike this record? Seriously. He's, he's picked up this record in particular for his coat downiness. No, but I'm, I'm assuming that he has no time for it. Um, mm. And he's just wrong, wrong, wrong. You know, he um, is. He they're is. Just, yeah. they're, we've, we've talked about ABBA uh, before, but they are the greatest pop group of the 70s, maybe of all time. Um, Angel Eyes, I'm, I'm amazed that uh, Elaine Page um, sort of gave that as a miss. Yeah. And then, and then, and then was allowed to work yeah. uh, with, with Betty and Bjorn. They obviously don't hold a grudge. Or either that yeah. or they didn't see the mm. footage. Um, yeah. what, what I love about this, uh, this, this record, um, I think Sarah in a previous podcast was talking about the idea of uh, pop songs, which when you're a child, they hint at secret adult knowledge that you don't yes. Yes. get yet. This is a and I think, prime um, example. Yeah, I think several of us have talked about this before in uh, various uh, uh, contexts. But um, just a bit where they go, you know what I mean on this record. I mean, I mm. didn't. But I thought, yeah. you know, I'd quite like to know what they mean. No, you're right, Simon. I was confused as well, because for years, I thought the lyric Masters of the Scene was actually Masters of the Sea, <laughs> which makes the song be about trawler fishing. And, you know, when they're going back to get some more, you know what I mean. I always assumed that that must be cod. Yeah. You know, our cod yeah. that they were nicking off us. But no, it's that classic ABBA trope, isn't it? Jaded adults slapping at a bat. And this could have been on the soundtrack to the bitch. Yeah, it it could yeah, have. But but they, they couldn't afford it. <laughs> that world weariness of the lyrics is what's absolutely key here. That world yeah. weariness combined with the upbeat drive of it. I've always loved that mix. I mean, that kind of is why I like things like Teardrops by Wayback and Wayback. That mix between mournfulness and a, a forward driving music. So mm. it is crucial that this is their only one recorded outside of Sweden to a certain extent. Um, you know, Criteria Studios where this is recorded. I mean. So much legendary stuff is recorded there. Um, but what, like, as Simon says, it I wouldn't even call this a disco record to a certain extent. It's almost like Eurobeat before its time. Yeah. It, it's got that mournfulness of old Europa mixed into it, accentuated by those world-weary lyrics. Um, and, and, you know, the odd thing is, ABBA, if, if, you were, if you were doing this as a kind of, like, index of what were the most popular songs, this would almost count as a failure because it doesn't get to number one. It only gets, yeah. you know, into the top five. But I think it's just fantastic, this record. Yes. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, to the point where that horn line, that's part of my internal whistles. Yes. You know, I whistle that just walking down the street. Doing something completely different, that, that'll that come there. Mm. A lot of rock bands had a go at disco, a lot of pop bands had a go at disco. ABBA did it absolutely fantastically. Yes. And, and this is this is one of the highlights of this show, I would say, this video. Because Agnetha looks astonishing in this video, and so does Frida. Um, mm. Gould knows where this disco that they're singing at is actually going on. Because what you yeah. don't see is the kind, of, the kind of lush theatricality of what you do get to see in The Bitch. This just seems like a youth club disco almost yes. that they're kind of playing this at. I mean, the video's directed by Lassie Hallstrom, who went right. on to direct What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Mm-hmm. Chocolate and the Cider House Rules, and uh, it's it's your standard band pretending to play live video. But yeah. the idea of our playing in a club or a youth club disco and not a stadium in Australia is is mental. Yeah, that's that's what I love about it. You know, because they are they're, they're on on a low stage. They're almost um, audience level. Yeah, uh, in this sort of sweaty, you get the feeling of sweat in the air, sweaty dance club. Yeah, and yeah, and um, previously they presented these kind of 
untouchable pop superheroes. But but here they are sort of getting down and dirty. Absolutely, and yeah. Which, which totally matches the mood of the song. And what stops it just being an attempt by Europeans to replicate black American pop is what Pricey mentioned, the folkiness of the vocal that makes them so... The close harmonies. That yes. folkiness that makes them so Nordic and so compelling. Makes them impossible to sing harmonies to, always with ABBA, because it's just mm. so close. You have to be... Yeah. Swedish almost to understand how to <laughs> sing that way. Um, so, uh, you know, I would not call this, although ABBA fans may well not put this high up in, in the kind of pantheon. To me, it's well high up. It's, a, it's an absolute mm. tune. It's an absolute tune. This is good disco by non-disco people. Yeah. And like the best disco records by non-disco people, you always say, oh, this is an ABBA song rather than this is a disco song. Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, things like, yeah, I know, absolutely. Do you think I'm sexy? Miss you, I would count as good disco by, by non-disco people. Mm. Whereas well, something like, I don't know, Eagles, one of these nights, that's trying mm. too fucking hard and it's got none of them in it, in a way. It's trying too hard. So it's still, it's still unmistakably an ABBA record in, in, yeah. ev- in every way, but it just has that pulse to it. I would love, yeah. I've never played this out as a DJ, but I would love to. Mm. And I, I absolutely love them still at this time. Um, yeah. Going back to what you said um, earlier on, Al, about um, being in that era where you didn't care about being cool yet. You mm. just pick yes. a bit from here and a bit from yeah, there. Yeah. That's very much how I was, and ABBA were key to that. Um, ABBA Greatest Hits Volume 2, which had only just come out, was uh, just you know rinsed permanently on my turntable um, at this time. I just completely worshipped them. And there wouldn't have been any contradiction in my mind between loving this and loving the Sham 69 record. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I, I, I love it all. Yeah, mm. if you were yeah. at Youth Club Disco and uh, this came on after Hershey Boys, you wouldn't be leaving the dance floor, would no, you? No, 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 not at all. You'd just be kicking people a bit less. <laughs> <laughs> so, the following week, Voulez-Vous slash Angel Eyes nipped up two places to number three, its highest position. And the follow-up, I Have a Dream, closed out the year, spending four weeks at number two, held off the Christmas number one by another brick in the wall by Pink Floyd. Yeah, I Have a Dream was was pretty much the moment I was starting to turn away from ABBA. Yeah, it's a bit of a misfire, to be fair. Zava at number five and Voulez-Vous. A guy I've been waiting to make a chart entry and at last he's going to do it. B.A. Robertson, bang, bang. The striped jacket of true love's fine, bang, bang. If you're Houdini in your spare time, bang, bang. Lord Nell and Lady Hamilton, they fought for love. When he come home from the war, he give a what for love. The mighty fall when love has come. How? Back under the palm tree, but now surrounded by a handful of the kids, tells us about a guy who's been waiting for ages to get a chart hit, and now he's on the verge of doing it. Then he stands up, points at the stage again, and introduces Bang Bang by B. 
A. Cunterson. <laughs> Born in Glasgow in 1956, Brian Alexander Robertson was a graduate of the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama who signed his first record deal with Ardent Records and released the LP Ringing Applause in 1973. After spending time as a fill-in pianist for Steve Arley and Cockney Rebel, he was picked up by Arista Records in 1976 for the LP Shadow of a Thin Man, but success continued to elude him. However, he was picked up by Asylum Records earlier this year, and this is the follow-up to Goosebumps, which failed to chart. It was co-written with Terry Britton, who played guitar on Elvin Stardust's My Kukachu and co-wrote Devil Woman for Cliff Richard in 1976, and has also co-written seven of the tracks on Cliff Richard's next LP, Rock and Roll Juvenile, with Robertson. And after entering the charts at number 69 last week, it soared 25 places to number 44. And somewhere in East London, Taylor Parks is stopping whatever he's doing, cocking his head, <laughs> sniffing the air and emitting a blood curdling howl oh man it, it, it's just not right us doing bang bang without taylor being here <laughs> maybe it's for the best you know it's a really strange shot of power with those kids um because yes. some of them have got their back to the camera um yes. and, and there's one girl who looks kind of hanging like, on his every word oh yeah the one who looks like olive from on the buses she is yes. hanging on his every single bloody word but it's interesting what he says as well been waiting on him to have a chart entry at last he's gonna do it i always mm. got that feel with ba Cunterson that he was yeah. there by official sanction he was made a pop star by yes. his mates you know and and yeah for me there's too much horror here to really get into in a certain extent. But there's one line that crystallises it all. Lyrically, this is a horrible song. And, and there's mm. a line, uh, Sherlock Holmes produced a little yes. toke of love and he does this knowing wink and a tap oh. of the nose. I fucking hate that. And I hate yes. this song lyrically, musically. I hate him because he just seems to have, like an awful lot of stage schoolers who become pop stars, just scorn for pop music. That's all he's got. He's just got scorn for it all. And he's just mm. constantly taking the piss and arch about it. So the, yes. only, the only thing I'd like to note about this horrible record, sung by a cunt, is that... This is uh, perhaps an, the, another solitary note in favour of Cliff Richard is that we don't talk anymore. Keeps this shit off the top spot. Yes. Um, this is I, I found this bit loathsome. My question has to be: As a kid, would I have been amused and into it and excited? No, I don't think I would have been. I would have not particularly no. understood what his words were about. But I would have thought. I, I know I would have thought. Oh, he's going to be a pop star because somebody has said that that's what's going to happen. I, I mean, he was on Radio One all the fucking yeah, time. Yeah. Around about this time. And this song, I knew it. I, I probably heard this song more than any other song on this episode. Yeah, yeah. And Simon, this is why we've selected it, isn't it? because you love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, funny you should say that. Ooh. Because uh, one disclaimer before we give this man yet another chart music kicking. Um, I probably quite liked this song yeah. at the time. Um, it was on the KTEL album Night right. Moves, right. Um, which is my favourite of all the KTEL albums. And, you know, I didn't skip the track when it when it was on. As a grown-up, I can see that it's a lyric which is more pleased with itself than it has uh-huh. any right to be. And a lot of what I'm going to say is essentially repeating what Neil said, because I agree <laughs> with him. Well, um, so no, it's, no, it's not said enough, <laughs> Simon. Well, 
I mean, right, so it just lists a load of historical couples, Romeo and Juliet, yes. Samson, Delilah, Lord Nelson, Lady Hamilton, and it sort of suggests that love causes people to lose their minds, blah, blah. And it's mm. just sort of, that kind of songwriting, it's, it's too Ronnie's yeah. level, yeah. that's what it is, it's too Ronnie's level stuff. Mm. And and it bothers me as much as it bothered Neil that it uses the word toke, because <sighs> I I hate... I hate drug references yeah. in pop songs. Well, I well, well he, he even copped out of it because if you go back and listen to it, he sings Sherlock Holmes preferred a little token love oh. for t- oh, for the really? top of the pops performance. Yes, oh, yeah, wow. I, I, I had a, I had a very beady eye on that, and he says, oh. yeah, a, a little yeah, token but he does love. tap his nose. It is it is the nose Cons. press at the side to let the let the heads know what's going <laughs> on. I mean, you know, I I find that stuff alienating mm. personally. Um, because yeah. it's it's just basically uh, a, a nod and a wink to the to the adults in the room, mm. uh, and it shuts out the kids. Another thing that bothered me in a similar way, actually, um, is that he name checks a guy called Johnny Fruin, yes, um, who who was an executive at Warner's. Johnny Fruin is John Fruin, who'd been managing director of Polydor and was currently the managing director of WEA, and he was the villain of the piece in that 1980 World in Action episode about chart rigging. Yeah, and he and he uh, resigned. He resigned afterwards. Yeah, of course. And uh, uh, wouldn't you believe it? This was one of the singles that he'd helped to hype up the charts. Fucking yeah. hell, it's a murky uh, old business. A lot of Judy Zook tour jackets. <laughs> <laughs> were, were, were used in the making of this song. Just he just does it to rhyme with yeah. ruin. And um, yeah, so yeah both, Samson both... and Delilah. Yeah, apparently this record executive uh, copped off with Delilah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He's rewriting the Bible. <laughs> It's just fucking incestuous, isn't it? It's a bloody, it's a nod and a wink to his music business. Exactly. And yes. Including the drug so both, Yeah, both know. those things. There's also, you know, nice reference to domestic violence because Lord Nelson gave Lady Hamilton some what for and he, he, he mimes a black eye. And, of right. course, BDSM with the Marc Dessard. So, mm. yeah, there we go. But with all this stuff, and particularly the toke and the John Fruin, he is shutting out the pop kids and he's winking at, yes. his, at his own peers yes. who are grown-up music biz yeah. people who would have known what a toke was and who John Fruin was. And yeah. and they would have shared his anti-pop worldview, which mm. I, I agree mm. with Neil on that. I'm going to come to that shortly. Just about the performance itself, one thing that jumps out at me is that B.A.'s face is superimposed on a big upright drum. And uh, I wish mm. his actual face was stretched across <laughs> it like... Uh, like yes. like um, like like Cassandra O'Brien in Doctor Who, and yes. uh, and and repeatedly beaten by the session drummer Graham Jarvis. Yeah, and we could get Stuart Coatman to write Brian is a cunt on it. <laughs> because right, um, and and by the way, the fact that he studied at the Royal Scottish Academy um, just says it all. Yeah. And explains a lot yeah. because he hates pop. Right, even his na na nas in song are sarcastic. Right, mm. and here's yeah. the thing. Right. Um, if you think pop is shit and trite and banal, then there are two respectable things you can do, right? One, you can reject pop entirely and mm. pursue an alternative path. Fine. Yeah. Two, you can embrace pop, but twist it and turn it to your own ends. What you can't do and expect to emerge with any dignity or credit or credibility is act like you're above it all, yeah. right? Making a pop record, but holding it at arm's length with tongs at an ironic yes. distance, pointing at it and saying, ooh, look at pop, isn't it silly? Yep. Fuck off. Absolutely. Right? Mm. 
So, yeah. And, and by the way, it, it even upsets me that Peter Powell at the end says, those guys are too much. Like, yeah. like you know, like he's in on the whole joke as well. Uh, even yeah. though I know it's Powell's job to enthuse about everything. Just the whole thing seems to be, huh, we're the grown-ups and we're making a sort of jokey pop song while knowing yeah. that really it's all a bit down. Mm-hmm. Fuck off. For me, his entire shtick and, and attitude and why he's so repellent is summed up with that Bow Wow Wow interview. Um, yes. His snottiness, his 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 yeah, he's just such a cunt in that interview, and and mm. you know I can't shake that. Um, I think like Pricey though, maybe at the time this came out, I would have let it pass in a sense. It would yeah. I wouldn't have seen that score and I wouldn't have understood all of that because like we've all said pre pre discernment if you like pre taste yeah. you just respond almost physically to what tunefully gets you what rhythmically gets you um mm. but but yeah ever since i sort of learned more about this wank snap i've hated his guts yeah at the time neil he was to to someone of my age and simon's age he was just another stitch in the rich tapestry of pop he's a kid's entertainer ultimately um at that yeah. point but the further removed we get from this, we can realise just what a horrible, reprehensible company was. Mm. Do you reckon anybody in 2019 is listening to Bear Robertson records, you know, with any kind of sense of fondness or nostalgia? Is there anyone out there? Because it's sold a lot of records, mm-hmm. but is anyone... No, well, I bet you, if you go on Spotify and, and get on B.A. Robertson, there's probably something insane like 20,000 monthly plays or something. It, it, it strikes... It, it's one of those things. It's like I, I often thought this about Elton John's Made in England, right? That's mm. somebody somewhere in the world right now is making a decision to listen to music and is choosing to listen to that. And somebody right now is doubtless... So, you know, through the entire panoply of pop history is plucking out Bang Bang by B.A. Cunterson as what they want to listen to. Well, who those people are, who knows? Um, let's, let's hope we never find out. So, the following week, Bang Bang entered the top 40 at number 27. And four weeks later, it went all the way up to number two. Held off number one by We Don't Talk Anymore by Cliff Richard. One of the songs from the rock and roll juvenile LP, He Didn't Go Right. Oh, I bet that pissed him right off <laughs> the follow-up knocked it off got to number eight in november of this year and he'd have three more top 40 hits in the aventis making his last chart appearance in 1983 when time a duet with frida only got to number 45 however after a spell snuffling around the crotch of the bbc writing I Want to Be a Winner for Brown Sauce and the theme tune to Saturday Superstore, as well as appearing in the BBC Two comedy show Dear Heart and his own music show BA in Music. He relocated to America and wrote Silent Running and the Living Years for Mike and the Mechanics and was executive producer for Simply Mad About the Mouse, a compilation of Disney songs which featured Billy Joel, Soul to Soul, Michael Bolton and LL Cool J. Fucking hell. <laughs> LL Cool J and B.A. Robson actually had a conversation once. That's, <laughs> that's fucking insane. Well, I once pissed on Jazzy B's back door and um, I'm saying... Really? That, yeah, yeah. And I'm saying that's uh, still less kind of disgraceful than the idea of uh, B.A. Robertson working with them. Why did you piss on Jazzy B's back door, Simon? Tell the tale. Soul to Soul had a shop, a clothes shop in Camden Town. Yes, they did. And uh, I'd been out on the piss. And uh, um, I was waiting for the night bus home. 
and um, there were no public toilets. And shamefully, I thought, I'm just going to run down um, an alleyway here and find a dark corner to piss in. <laughs> and I ended up pissing against like a wooden back gate of some property or other. But little did I know, it was the soul-to-soul shop. And suddenly a light Uh-oh. goes on, the fucking gate opens, and I'm legging it, zip myself up as Jazzy B himself. He's going, oh, and chasing me wow. down the alleyway. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Fucking hell. Now I know that he worked with B.A. Robertson. I'm thinking, well, you know, fucking had it coming. <laughs> when you were running away, you should have sang to him. You'll be in my life, my life always. Yellow is the colour of my piss. <laughs> <laughs> lot of just too much. B.A. Robertson and Bang Bang. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, girls talk, don't they? At four, on top of the box, it's Dave Evans. Pow! On his own, gestures over his shoulder and says, You know, that lot, they're just too much. He then immediately pivots to a video of Girls Talk by Dave Edmonds. We've already discussed Dave Edmonds in chart music's number 25 and number 34, and this is the lead cut from his fifth LP, Repeat When Necessary, which came out in June of this year. It's a cover of a song that was written by Elvis Costello for his forthcoming album, Get Happy, which was donated to Edmonds by a drunken Costello who turned up at his studio with a demo tape. According to Edmonds, quote, he came to the studio one day and said, I've got a song for you, and he gave me a tape. Now, it wasn't very good. It was just him on a guitar, and he was rushing through it at a furious pace. At first, I couldn't see it, but I really like the complete new arrangement and feel that I've put onto it. I'm not sure Elvis likes it, mind you. It's the follow-up to A1 on the jukebox, which failed to chart, and it's his first chart entry since I Knew the Bride got to number 26 in July of 1977. 
It's spending its third week in a row at number four, and here's the video featuring Edmonds, and he's not officially a band yet due to record contract either. Rockpile performing on the roof of the Warner Brothers office in Midtown Manhattan. Before we get stuck into the single, I mean, last time uh, the three of us discussed Peter Parle, there was much to say about his general demeanour. And in this episode, we don't get so much of that, do we? He's very businesslike. He moves straight on. Here's this, here's that, pal. Yes. I think the calming influence of tea has has, has put him right, I feel. Yeah, I think... um... He's slightly aggravating with his kind of Mr. Cool affectations. But essentially, he does a professional job uh, in this episode, mm. moves things along, and you can't really fault he's him. He's been doing this for a year mm. now. Mm. And he's, he, he, he knows the ropes. Yeah, he's all right on this one. Yeah. One of the reasons why it's such a good episode, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, you could have had a similarly dull presenter like Skinner, but Skinner would irritate where Powell soothes. So, this video, it's uh, it's pretty bog standard for 1979, isn't it? Here's the band, they're on a roof, and it's cut with shots of Dave walking about with some girl who's a bit too young for him. And uh, there's someone with a camera doing some very intrusive filming of women just walking Absolutely. about. Uh, just on yeah. the way to work, including one on roller skates who, uh, who nearly goes into the back of a taxi. That precise film grain and those streets, it's very Annie Hall, this video. It's very yes. king of comedy. It's that kind of era of New York. But yeah. what the cameraman seems to be doing, yeah, he's perving. He's spying. This is, this yes. is next to an upskirt video, really. Um, mm. Which is a shame, because it's such a great song. But um... It shows the profound difference between New York and Los Angeles, isn't it? Because if they'd have shot this in LA, there'd be one woman who wasn't on roller skates. <laughs> and they'd, they'd be showing off to the camera. But um, in this case, it's just like, oh, look, there's a bloke with a camera. But my, my favourite one is the one with her hair pulled back in pigtails and the satin bomber jacket. And, and she looks like she's going out with one of the warriors. <laughs> and she just turns around and just shoots and absolutely filthy yeah, look. Yeah. You do get people walking around and roller skating in New York. If they'd have filmed this in LA, street walkers didn't really exist unless they were prostitutes to a certain extent. When I, Whenever I went yeah. to LA, because I was obviously skint, um, I was walking the streets and you'd get stared at like you're a leper if you're not in a car in that mm. city. So it had to be filmed in New York, yeah. I think. And I think um, it's quite a, a glamorous scenario. Um, in the middle of a very British episode of Top of the Pops. Mm. You know, just to get yes. that little taste of, of America, it just it's quite yeah. it's quite exciting for a moment there. He's there in his sort of Elvis shades and yeah, you mentioned the rooftop thing in Manhattan. My mind went to that famous photo shoot of John Lennon by Bob Gruen, um mm. uh, where he's wearing that that NYC um that uh, mm. New York um top. Um mm. so yeah, um I I I just quite liked it. It's a, a nice a nice little interlude of I don't know, um, almost a different flavour of the air, even if it's full of yes. full of kind of uh, carbon monoxide, but it's also full of sunshine, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. It's a very yeah. dowdy interpretation of New York. There's nothing amazingly glamorous about it, but even so, in 1979, it's like, oh my God, that's America, their cars yeah. are bigger like, than ours. Like, like yeah. Kojak. Oh, there's a yellow taxi. It's, exactly. Oh, it's, it's like watching Kojak where, you know, um, the, the yes. streets are filthy, but still you're watching it. It's like, oh, it's America. It's glamorous America. Yeah. There's that kind of thing yeah. to it. And of course, yeah, you mentioned the band. There's uh, Nick Lowe very visibly on bass there, mm. uh, yes. even though he's yeah not not officially meant to be there and all that. I see this, and it's quite interesting. This coming straight after B. A. Robertson, because B. A. Robertson um, was kind of a, a vaguely pub rock figure. Um, that mm. this is redeemable pub rock as opposed mm. to B. A. Who's yes. irredeemable pub rock. Yes. Um, I've mentioned before that I have sort of local pride and um, family connections 
with uh, Dave Edmonds. He's and one of his awards. Got one of his awards, yeah. Um, so, yeah, my, my dad knew him because Dave Edmonds uh, is from Dinis Powys, which is the posh village down the road from Barry. Uh, mm. And uh, um, he was born exactly a year to the day before my dad, and they knew each other. And uh, there yeah. was a, a Welsh Music Award ceremony that uh, um, a prize was given to Dave Edmonds, but he wasn't there. So I actually presented it to my dad. And as a family, we still have it. And I sort of think if the Edmonds family are listening to this, if, if uh, Dave himself happens to hear about this, uh, I'm happy to pass the award on, but I also kind of want to keep it because I've got... <laughs> no, 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 no. Got... Come on, Simon. Come on. Dave, if you're listening, that award that Simon's got in exchange for a pair of Fonz boots. <laughs> oh. Remember, Simon? You, you had a Fonz doll, but you didn't have the exactly. boots. Exactly. So, yeah, like multi- multi-colored yeah. swap shop style, we could get that going. Yeah, there's on. the deal. Yeah, yeah. There's the deal, Dave. Right, yeah, I'm holding it to ransom. Or, you know, Welsh and everything. A shaking Stevens heterosexual rock and roll badge. You know you've got one, Dave, in a drawer somewhere. I bet he's got one. Yeah, he must have gigged with Shaking Stevens on the sunsets in the early days. Yeah, no question about there it. There we go. Yeah, then yeah, yeah. there's the deal, Dave. Yeah, swap it for a badge. Yeah, no problem. So this song, um, I really like it. Um, the the Costello lyric. I often wondered, uh, is it so subtly misogynist? You know, um, just mm. the opening mm. lines. Um, there are some things you can't cover up with lipstick and powder. Uh, I think I heard you mention my name. Could you talk any louder? So it, it's kind of that the whole lyric seems to almost be portraying girls, women as being somehow trivial and superficial. Uh, but he's this kind of truth seer mm. who wants to strip all that away and he can hear what's yes. really going on. You know the line, Simon, yeah. you know, you've, you know, you've brought up something interesting there because you know the line, I heard you mention my name, can you talk any louder? Yeah. I always, up until you said that, I assumed it was, I heard you mention my name, can you talk any louder because I want to hear what you're saying about me. Yeah. Or is he saying, oh, can you can you talk any louder? There's some people in Australia who didn't. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. No, I think it, I still think it's the former. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. But 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 either way, yeah, it's got that kind of fairly gentle. I don't know about misogyny as, as such, but it's kind of bitterness. Mm. It's, it's it's bitter against women, and I actually think bitterness from males towards women, uh, while a horrible and destructive thing in real life relationships, um, actually makes for some great rock and roll, great rock and yes. roll songwriting. Mm. I really do. Um, so I, I think it's it's a it's a very very good song and I I just really like it. I've got kind of nice associations that my dad loved this record and and all of that and um, yeah and and again a bit like the Corgis, just uh, a kind of irresistible melodic pop rock song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that mean spiritedness that you're talking about in the lyrics, I get that way more from Elvis Costello's version than I get from this. Um, this mm. just seems like a warm song to me. I really yeah. like this song. Mm. I think it's probably. Probably my favourite Dave Edmonds song. The, the, the sort of Everly Brothers homage of it is a little less obvious than it is in other records, but I hear a lot of the Everly Brothers problems in this as well. And I love this. I, I kind of have mentally confused it for an awfully long part of my life with a Squeeze song for some reason. When I, when I hear it, I kind of mistake it for a Squeeze song and think it's by Squeeze. But I like most of the versions of this, apart from the Elvis Costello version. I actually love the Linda, Linda Ronstadt version of this too. Um, mm, I've not heard that. Oh, it's a good version. It's, it's, a, it's a good version of a good song. Um, so, 
Yeah, it, 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 the mean spirited it, it, Costello got irate, I think, with Dave Edmonds' version because Dave Edmonds structurally makes it make more sense as well. He makes the second yeah. verse have four lines rather than three lines. He adds a line in that Elvis didn't like, um, but I actually think it makes it more balanced, more effective as a pop record. And, and I love this tune. If this came on the radio, of course I'd jack this up loud now. This is a good tune. And of course, with the video, every time you see a video in New York in the late twentieth century, you're immediately looking round for the World Trade Center. <laughs> yeah. First time I watched the video, I thought it was there. I thought I thought they were playing right next to it, but then I just went, "Oh, it's it's New York, isn't it? It's just two other stupidly massive buildings." <laughs> yeah. But the weird thing, when yeah, I, I mean, it, this is a sidetrack. But the first time I went to New York, the first time anyone goes to New York, what you feel like is you're on a film set because you've seen so yes. many fucking films there. And yeah. my first time was with a photographer called Steve Gullick from Melody Maker, and we were going over to do Chuck D from Public Enemy. Um, in his house in Long Island and it was my first trip to America um, and we arrived at night and I didn't even know Steve I've never met him before um, but we, we sort of met up at JFK Airport and we get in a cab and to Steve Gullick who was there constantly this was just another yeah. work trip do you know what I mean but it was at yeah. night we drove out of JFK, we're coming over the Hudson, and I, for the first time in my life, see Manhattan lit up. And I'm just, wow. you know, you can imagine what that feels like, especially for an inveterate, nerdy movie watcher, um, how important yeah. that is. And there's Steve Gullick next to me, for whom all of this he can be blasé about. He suddenly twigged that I'm from Coventry, just like he is. Um, Steve Gullick's dad, by the way, is still about in Cov, and he's a great cabbie. If you ever get a cab with Steve Gullick's dad, he's great. But um, can now adverts and podcasts, <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> but no, um, Steve Gullick's in my ear just going, oh, what's going on in Cov? What's going on in Stokeith? What's going on in Cadley? And I was just like, shut the fuck up, this is New York. You know, it was amazing to me, but I had this Cov presence dragging me back. Uh, While you're trying to lose yourself in a kind of Woody Allen Manhattan reverie with sort of Shostakovich or whatever it is playing in your ears and stuff like that. That's it, that's it. But no, as soon as, when you get to New York and you see a yellow cab and you see one of those things in the, that one of those uh, manhole covers with steam coming out of it, my God, that's just a moment in your life. Alligators down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So the following week, Girls Talk dropped five places to number nine. The follow-up, Queen of Hearts, got to number 11 in October of this year, and in 1980, Edmonds finally managed to get Rockpile signed to a deal, and then they split up after one LP, by which time Elvis Costello nicked his song back and put it on the B-side of I Can't Stand Up For Falling Down. Which is the rarest record on two-tone, of course. Mm. Yes. Because they accidentally pressed up a few dozen copies of that. It's the rarest record I own. Um, Fucking hell. So, yeah, Have yeah. you priced so- it up? Um, well, it work. varies. Um, you, you sometimes see it for as much as 180 quid. Right. Um, I, I managed to pick one up for about 50 or 60. Um, oh. So yeah, it's not it's not super valuable. But just being a sort of two tone completist, I had to have it. <laughs> Girls talk. Hot work here. Sun, sand, legs and co. Earth, wind and fire. What have you got? Pal 
with his jacket over his shoulder, revealing his short-sleeved yellow shirt, tells us that it's dead hot and asks us, what do we get when Legs and Co. are fused with the next single, After the Lover's Gone by Earth, Wind and Fire. Formed in Chicago by Maurice White, a former session drummer for Chess Records in 1969, Earth, Wind & Fire were signed up to Warner Brothers and put out two LPs in 1971. Their eponymous debut release and the soundtrack to Sweet Sweetback's badass song for Stax. After the original band split up in 1972, White pulled together a new band under the same name, signed to CBS and became one of the biggest dance acts in the USA. But it wasn't until 1977 that the UK caught on when they went all disco and the single Saturday Night got to number 17 in March of that year. They kicked off 1978 with Fantasy, which got to number 13 in March of that year, and after two singles that stalled outside the top 40, they roared back with September, which eventually got to number 3 in January of this year. This is the follow-up to Boogie Wonderland, which got to number 4 for three weeks in June, and it's the second cut from their ninth LP, I Am, which is currently at number 8 in the UK album chart. It was originally written but never used for J.P. Morgan, a fixed-is female singer who was best known in the US at the time for getting fired as a panellist on The Gong Show when she flashed her tits at the camera and had already been offered to and rejected by Hall & Oates. After entering the charts last week at number 59, it soared 29 places to number 26, making it the second highest new entry in this week's top 40. And as they're not kicking around London at the moment and are probably having a big stage show spaceship fight in the desert with ELO and Funkadelic, <laughs> here come Legs and Co. to emote to it. Yeah. Oh. Well, but could, could I just talk about the song before we talk about Legs and Co.? Because... I think this song, After Love Has Gone, and, and songs like it by uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, put me off Earth, Wind & Fire for the longest time. Mm. Um, you know mm. that thing that we've talked about in the past where at some point in the 80s we all got sick of the present and started investigating the past? Yes. Earth, Wind & Fire really should have been part of my funk yeah. education, if you like. Definitely. You know, So if I'm, if I'm listening to Slide of Family Stone and stuff like that and P-Funk, I should have been listening to Earth, Wind & Fire. I should have been listening straight away to That's the Way of the World because that's a fucking yes. amazing album from 1975. But yeah. songs like this... I think, you know, because they're so grown up and, and, and because they're they're sort of soft in a sense, mm. um, put me off exploring Earth, Wind & Fire properly for the longest, longest time. That kind of quiet storm, last chance for slow dance stuff really didn't appeal to me as a kid. Yeah. Um, it wasn't made for me, no. you know? It was made for adults. So although now I, I quite like this song, actually, mm. um, I, I don't love it. I, I, I don't love it as much as you do, perhaps, perhaps no. because of overexposure. Yeah. But, but I, I do like this song because I'm an adult. At the time, I wouldn't have responded to it no. at all. No. Um, but EWF are left out of a lot of people's funk educations and they yeah. need to be in there. Yeah, They're fucking uh, such a brilliant band. Yeah. I mean, they're on fire this year. Fucking hell, Boogie Wonderland. Amazing song. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, September, which uh, has taken on a second life for me as uh, because it's a, a Wales football chant. Oh, right. <laughs> called, uh, Johnny Esther. Oh, right. <laughs> so it's, yeah, um, they sing Johnny Esther to the tune of September. But um, yeah, I absolutely adore this song. 
um, and even though I was only 11 at the time, and it is very adult. Well, it's divorce pop, isn't it? Yeah, it's divorce pop, totally. It's, it is talking about adult feelings. Again, it's one of these things, talks about adult feelings that I couldn't mm. yet comprehend, but something about it reached me and maybe sort of said, well, you will understand mm. one day, mm. do you know what I mean? Don't want to get all personal, Simon. This is after your parents had got divorced. It was probably after they both got divorced from their second marriages as well. Right. Yeah, so there's a lot of divorce in my <laughs> life, so maybe that's why uh, it was you know, something that I could comprehend on some mm. level. Mm. Um, and, and Neil is right that Earth, Wind & Fire should be part of people's funk education. And I feel remiss in that respect because I've not really done a deep dive on them. I feel, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm slightly ashamed of that. I feel like I really need to mm. get into the albums, not just yeah. the singles. We knew them as a, as a disco band, That's didn't it. we? Yeah. I guess so. Um, I, I guess they, they had that whole Egyptology, that whole sort of Afrofuturism thing going mm. on around the same time, I, I guess, as... Uh, um, Funkadelic Parliament and yeah. way ahead of Janelle Monáe. But when, when I see Janelle Monáe's artwork on the um, Arch Android album, I instantly think Earth, Wind & Fire rather than anything else. Yeah. I do think I should give Earth, Wind & Fire a bit more of a chance. And you could probably pick up their albums for about two yeah. quid. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, maybe a bit battered around the edges. But lots of people seem to have those LPs. Yeah. In, you know, when, when I think back to that era. Um, musically, it was sophisticated in a way which again I'm surprised it spoke to me at the age of 11 because in terms of the musical sophistication it's got that big key change it goes higher and higher and higher and oh that bit you know that bit uh, mm. and it's just sublime and I, I wouldn't say I'm a big fan of uh, all of their stuff in terms of the hit singles but this and I've, I've obviously I've played it at late night minicab fm it's perfect for that yeah of course yeah. I'm kind of quite proud of my um, uh, prepubescent self that somehow I, yeah, I, rec- yeah. I recognise the greatness of this. Yeah, it's a sophisticated record in a musical sense as well because one of the things that Earth, Wind & Fire do quite frequently in their stuff that a lot of other bands didn't do, at some point in this record, you, where's the lead singer? Or is there a lead singer? Do you know what I mean? There's a lead singer on the verses, without a doubt. But when the chorus kicks in, mm. the backing vocals become the lead vocal. And and there's just this mm. lovely layering of texture of, of the backing vocals to the point where the tune is there, but it's more of a collective thing. The thing that, that did register for me at a young age about Earth, Wind & Fire was that there seemed to be about 50 of them. Because the, yes. <laughs> the video for Boogie Wonderland, I mean, it's nuts, that video, but the, yeah. it just seems like there's about yes. 30 people on that stage all doing something that you can hear. Um, and that collective mm. sense of Earth, Wind & Fire was very, very important. And it makes love songs that could be a bit, I don't know, that could got could have gone the Teddy Pendergrass route into something different. This is a different kind of kind yeah. of uh, divorce pop, as you've said. Yeah, I mean, divorce pop was a proper thing in the Aventis. And the Black American acts are, are, are the absolute best at it. I mean, you know, if you bar Hear My Dear by Marvin Gaye, the, the Black American divorce pop, it never allows itself to get any more than slightly rueful. Mm. there's no blame ascribed to anyone. It's just like, you know, something happened along the way and yesterday yeah. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah. The other prime example is Jones versus Jones by Cool and the Gang. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before we get stuck into Legs and Co, um, <laughs> is it just me or have Top of the Pops actually dubbed seagull noises over this? Yeah, yeah, because it's not on the record. I've watched it a few times, and all of a sudden it's like, hang on, the seagull noises. I don't remember that being on the record. <laughs> Went back and checked my version. It's not there. Top of the Pops have put sound effects on a fucking record. <laughs> like it's that awful that awful single, Summer the First Time, yes. um, by whoever it was. Yeah, yeah. Or, or more pertinently, uh, Portland Bill and Cockle Shell Bay. <laughs> right. 
fucking hell, can you imagine if they got the wrong record and done horror sound effects? <laughs> I being gouged out by Red Hot Poker. I used to love that album. When I was at yeah. college, we had a yeah. sound room and everything, and they had all the BBC sound effects. It's like, oh, I've got to hear fucking horror sound effects. <laughs> yeah. And it was them doing horrible things to cabbages. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. putting a cabbage in a guillotine or or plunging a red hot poker into a cabbage. Yeah, like what Toby Jones has to do in Barbarian Sound Studio. Yeah, that, mm. all that stuff. Yeah, me and my mate used to sit around and listen to those um, horror sound effects albums. We just sort of like switch the lights off and just sort of <laughs> scare ourselves. It's amazing. <laughs> it is weird, them, though, adding that Foley in as they do here, the seagull sounds. Yeah, there's no need And I don't it. remember them doing that for any other record with Legs & Co. No. So it's a strange no. one-off. Um, that perhaps they should have explored yeah. further in, 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 you know, future months. Well, can you imagine when Pan's people were dancing to horse with no name and they got some fucking coconut <laughs> shells out or something? Yeah. yeah. I mean, why they've chosen yes. that... I mean, obviously, they've chosen a sound effect to match the, the set, which they've done as a kind of sandy beach. Mm. Yes, mm. yes. It's to make their set look better, not the song. Yeah, yeah. So you've got that, they've got surfboards and boardwalks and all that kind of stuff. They've got a kind of like a squared-off boardwalk and they've got a couple of surfboards and they've got a hammock... And they've got loads of sand laid down, like a, as if a giant child has just been sick. Oh, the fucking hammock, that's a foreshadowing of what happens later in the episode as well. Yes. But, um, yeah, um, this is a one-off in another sense, because, right, for the first time, um, I genuinely and unironically enjoyed a Legs & Co. routine. I, Ooh, I actually, I what actually now? Thought, um, this, this episode, this, this one. Now or then? Well, uh, ever. You know, because oh, I, right. yeah, I'm not. You know, uh, we 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 sort of routinely rip the piss out of them, and it's usually along the lines of, well, they only had six days to come up with a routine, and you can tell, and it's really rough around the edges. But mm. this, I thought, was genuinely good. Um, mm. I think it's not it's not erotic as such, but I found no. I thought it was kind of sultry and sensual. Um, it isn't kitsch. And, and I, I think it matched, apart from the crappy set with the surfboards, I think the actual dance routine um, matches the song really, really well. They're being a bit mournje uh, on a beach in sarongs. It's like they're, they're all getting over a breakup by, you know, going away and having a bit of a dance. Well, oddly enough, I did find it strongly erotic. Um, I, had to, <laughs> I had to loosen my collar to let a jet of steam out at one point. Oh. <laughs> I did. No, I, I, like, I got like a I got, New York subway. Well, I got lots of satisfaction out of it. And normally, normally Ooh. beaches are not uh, erotic places for me because you just think about getting sand in your Grundies. But yeah. but this, yeah. th- th- broken glass and dog shit. Well, I think about sixty-year-old nudists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, I, I did. I did get an awful lot of satisfaction from this routine. It does, however, their moves do suit the music, and and you know. Um, Short of Earth, Wind and Fire being in the studio doing this, um, this is this is pretty good. So uh, a fucking uh, a victory all round for both uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, Legs of Co and pop music. And seagulls. <laughs> oh, wouldn't it be great if someone had just chucked some uh, seagull shit on Legs of Co or <laughs> streaking down them. Or one of them swooped down and nicked a bag of chips that they were eating. <laughs> Pri- in, pricey. In as synchronicity. A, as a Brightonian, you must have plenty of run-ins with them, with seagulls. Yeah, I love them, but it's a controversial issue down here. A lot of people hate seagulls. Um, there's um, a terrible, terrible Facebook group called Brighton People, which is full, <laughs> of, the, full of the sort of people who say, um, I'm born and bred. Um, it wasn't like this in the 60s. <laughs> I, um, usually 60s with an apostle 
apostrophe s. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and they say, uh, <laughs> I, I blame pride. It's all the political correctness. Yeah, and not, yeah. yeah, so it's just full of awful people. But We've got so many seagulls because of gay people. Is that what they're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. The things they hate, they hate the Greens, they hate Labour, um, they hate foxes, gypsies, um, uh, single parents, students, gays... Uh, immigrants generally and seagulls and um, it's illegal to kill a seagull but they think it shouldn't be right. uh, they think you should just be allowed to shoot them and I, I fucking love them, they're beautiful creatures they're um, a, a sort of miracle of uh, hardiness of, of evolution that they live to be 30 years old amazingly and Jesus. the reason that they're here ripping our fucking bin bags open is because we've overfished the seas so they have to move inland and they've adapted to that so when they're nicking bags of chips off people it's because they fucking have to we're on their patch they're not on our patch mm-hmm. that's the thing to remember so there ends my p- uh, party political broadcast on behalf of the seagull party <laughs> but i love them i hear that you can just the, the the tactic if you don't want them nicking your chips is just to stare them out it's if you if you make eye contact or fuck off back to London. <laughs> <laughs> you do identify a clear thing though that if you want to meet utter cunts, um, top commenters on local news uh, sort of yeah. pages are there. Yeah, if yes. anyone's been christened with a top fan badge, you can bet yeah. they're going to say something horrible pretty soon. Yeah. Well, I, I've, it's kind of backfired on me because I, I joined that group and I, I often, <laughs> I, I, no, I often go on there and I, I troll them by sort of adding a comment on a thread, which is like a grotesque, exaggerated parody yeah. of the sort of yeah. the sort of thing that they would say. But then they think I mean it, and some of them agree with me. Oh, <laughs> so, I do exactly the same, Pricey, on a Coventry group. When, when, whenever anything comes up because it always comes back to students being blamed or something else being blamed i have just started popping on and just saying yeah gas them like badgers and i get likes you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. <laughs> simon you want to go on there and pretend to be a gay immigrant seagull well i mean if they look at a photo of me they're going to come to that conclusion anyway. <laughs> let's be honest so the following week after the lovers gone leapt 12 places to number 14 and a week later it got to number four its highest position a month later, it would get to number two in America, held off the top spot by My Sharona by the Knack. The follow-up in the UK, Star, got to number 16 in November of this year, but in the US, their follow-up, In the Stone, only got to number 53 when it was released over here in March of 1980. Fucking hell, In the Stone is a genius song. Mm. Britain, mm. you fucking knobheads. Yeah. <laughs> After the love has gone, legs and co. At ten, it's Spucks. Rapidly stares off into the distance, shakes his head in a post-coital daze, loosens his tie and says, Woof. (laughs) This is, Peter Powell always does that with Legs and Co. A bit too much Mm. for my liking, I feel. 
Yeah, it is like Rick Mayle as Flashheart in Black Adder, isn't it? Woof, yes. Christ. Yeah, it really is. He's putting over the fact that he really likes girls. Yeah. Like the brass, they turn him on. <laughs> but he is yeah. at least the same sort of age as them. It's, it's disgusting when, when your Bateses and all that do exactly the same thing. With Powell, it's mm. kind of vaguely acceptable. He then pitches straight in to beat the clock by Sparks. Formed in Los Angeles in 1969 as Half Nelson, Sparks were originally a five-piece band which consisted of the male brothers, Ron on keyboards and Russell on vocals, Harley Feinstein on drums and the Mankey brothers, Earl on guitar and Jim on bass. Fucking hell, the Mankey <laughs> brothers would be a great fucking new wave band name, wouldn't it? It'd be yeah. a great reggae band name as well. It's a good name, that. Yes. <laughs> After being discovered by Todd Rundgren and signing to the Bearsville label, they put out two LPs in the early 70s. But when they came to London to promote their second LP, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing, scoring a residency at the Marquee and an appearance on the old Grey Whistle Test, the Mail Brothers decided to relocate to the UK, change their name to Sparks, and advertising Melody Maker for a new backing band. In 1974, the new lineup released their third LP, Kimono My House, and the lead track, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, got all the way to number two for two weeks in May of 1974, held off number one by Sugar Baby Love by the Rubettes. They would go on to score two more top 20 hits that year and three top 40 hits in 1975, but in 1976 they decided to return to America and adopt a more rocky AOR style, recording the LP Big Beat with the producer Robert Holmes, yes, the pina colada man, and appeared in the disaster movie Roller Coaster. After that LP and the follow-up introducing Sparks flopped over here and over there, they had a rethink and decided to have a go at this electronic thing that was starting to bubble up. After an interview in a German magazine where they proclaimed their love of the music Giorgio Moroder was coming out with, the interviewer told them that him and Giorgio were bestest mates and linked them up, resulting in the LP Number One in Heaven, which came out in March of this year. After the lead cut La Dolce Vita flopped, the second single off the LP, the number one song in heaven, put them back over the top, getting to number 14 in June, and this is the follow-up. It entered the top 40 at number 21 last week, and this week it's rocketed up 11 places to number 10, their first UK top 10 hit in over five years. And, yeah, I'm going to shut up and pass the bat on to Simon. Run, Simon, run. Well, uh, this song, perhaps more than any other, is the reason I chose this episode, because Mm. um, I am evangelical about Sparks. And a lot of fans are. They're one of those bands that, if Mm. you're into them, you really feel this burning sense of injustice that they're not bigger than they are. Um, Mm. (laughs) I heard there was a really, really funny email uh, that was read out on another podcast but it sort of went a little bit viral uh, somebody described queen as sparks for cunts right and um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I i don't mind a bit of queen actually but it, it did make me laugh because uh, a, a lot of a lot of sparks fans do think that the success that queen had should rightfully be sparks and I, uh, also mm. um, there is a, a direct connection in that when sparks first played in the uk Queen with their support band and uh, right. I'm saying they probably learned a thing or two uh, because prior mm. to that Queen were just a sort of uh, a rock band before they sort of get started to get really operatic um, yeah. and baroque 
Um, and also, uh, um, Sparks did try and uh, headhunt Brian May and Roger Taylor um, to join their yes. band uh, unsuccessfully. Um, but all of that backstory I had n- no idea about at this time. When I saw this, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the record later, I'll, I'll let Neil in first, but I just want to talk about the performance before that. Um, because here's the thing, right? Pop music, um, it, it can play a lot of tricks on your emotions. It can inspire love or lust. It can offer solace. It can provide cathartic release. It can, it can catalyze revolt, feelings of rebellion. But, but sometimes it can cause terror, right? And that's yes. how it was for me. Uh, when I saw this episode, this is the first time I saw Sparks on this Top of the Pops. I distinctly remember, and this is probably th- this performance is why I remember this episode uh, above all else. I was terrified and I was transfixed. Um, and it was this kind of contrast between the two of them, that kind of light and shade. Mm. So the singer, yes. right, he's fine. Nothing scary about Russell. He's hyperactive. No. He sings and out. He hasn't got his hot pants on this time. <laughs> no, not the hot pants. Not the hot pants. So he's, <laughs> he's singing in that sort of high histrionic voice. Um, but mm. I wasn't really noticing the lyrics, to be honest, at that point. You couldn't necessarily make them out because of the high-pitched voice. No. Later, years later, I realised they're absolute genius because the song is this ridiculous narrative of precociousness, exaggerated precociousness, of, of reaching life's landmarks ahead of time. But my, <clears> my favourite verse, it goes, Too bad there ain't ten of you, then I'd show you what I'd do. I could cheat on five of you and be faithful to you too, but there's only one of you. That's brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, my, but my attention wasn't on Russell at the age no. of 11. I was focused on his elder brother, Ron, keyboardist. Yes. And he, right, so he's immobile. He's almost sort of catatonic yes. there. He's like, he's like a Komodo dragon in the sun, right? Wait, wait, <laughs> waiting for a, a fly to go past and shoot out his tongue yeah. or something. So he's not moving at all apart from his fingertips, which are sort of jabbing at the keys in time with the, the, the synth stabs on the record. Um, mm. Which I don't, I'm not even sure he played them on the record. I think it's probably Maroda. But um, but crucially, the, part, the other part of him that's moving, his eyes, right? So he's yes. very still, mm. but his eyes would swivel suddenly, almost like uh, in, in a horror film, we've got a painting on the wall, and the eyes yes. of the painting just move back and forth. Uh, and, um, so, and suddenly he'd stare at you down the camera with, with this kind of blood chilling, sinister leer. And he's he's mm. breaking the fourth wall, but not in that welcoming way yeah. that David Bowie no. did on Starman, but a, a way which yeah. which made you wish the fourth wall had fucking prison bars in it. <laughs> like, yes. and, and so he had this menace, and the menace, of course, yeah. the menace was completed by his moustache, the toothbrush moustache. Yes, of course. Always compared to Hitler or Chaplin or both, right? Yeah. Apparently, after... Uh, after Sparks uh, were first on top of the pops, which I guess would have been this town big enough for both of us, John Lennon said, reportedly said he'd seen Hitler on TV, and um, <laughs> and, 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 and um, Ron himself acknowledged the problematic uh, nature of his facial hair. There's a song called Mustache on one of their albums, and and it goes, um, uh, but when I trimmed them real small, my Jewish friends would never call. Um, <laughs> but so he, he recognised there's a problem there. But that that kind of duality, Hit, Hitler slash Chaplin, was perfect as as uh, a summary of his persona because it's, it's horror plus comedy, which is what what you get from Sparks a lot of the time. But at the time, rather than those two, I was thinking of Doctor Crippen um, because mm. uh, my mum had taken me to Madame Tussauds in London, yeah. and I, I'd, I'd see so the Victorian serial killer. He's, he's in the um, the Chamber of Horrors in, in uh, Madame Tussauds. Uh, and um, uh, so w- when, when I saw Ron, and it reminded me of that, nothing, uh, n- neither, you know, 
people talk about the Daleks. They say, oh, I hid behind the sofa in the Daleks one. Yeah. Or people talk about the, the child catcher and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, whatever. Mm. Nothing, ha- none of those things had unsettled me quite as much as Ron Mayle on top of the pops. But the funny yeah. thing about children, right, when, you're sca- when they're scared of something, they're sometimes compelled to move towards it rather than yeah. away from it. Yes. So yeah. I, it, it hooked me in and I, I, I bought the single. Mm. So, uh, I mean, I'll talk, talk about the record in a minute. I want to let Neil in. But just that, that performance, you know, yeah. that's, that's no, what I mean, Neil, we've already discovered that, um, that you've had a, a terror of uh, Kate Bush's eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is this doing for you at this age? Well, no, I mean, I think for an entire generation, Ron Mayle is, a, is, a, is still a scary thing in our yes. head, a memory. <laughs> we remember those looks. We, we will remember them for the rest of our yeah. lives. Um, he absolutely got an ad and, so, and Price is spot on. It was both terrifying but entrancing and you yeah. kind of you kind of wanted to to know what was going on here yeah. i mean god knows there's precious few things to be proud of um in being british these days but i guess the fact that we took sparks to our heart mm. and they couldn't succeed in america but did make it here yeah i'm fiercely proud of yes. that fact um Sparks are a massively important band to me, not only as a listener, but also as a songwriter and a musician. They, they just up the ante, lyrically, yes. musically, and, and they put demands on you as a listener. They set standards in you as a listener and as a music maker that, that stick with you for the, your whole life. The last gig me and my missus went to see together was, um, didn't come and see you, Al, I'm afraid, even though it was in Nottingham Rock City, yeah, but it was Sparks. <laughs> and... We were so excited. We, we, we're stylish. We were a stylish couple. So we got dressed up properly mm-hmm. and we got there. And just like it was with Prince a few years before that, nobody else had got d- dressed up. And, and I yeah. felt that was like a betrayal mm-hmm. almost of what Sparks were all about. It was just loads and loads of big old blokes in band t-shirts, mm-hmm. um, which kind of exasperated me because the demands a band like Sparks put on you have been caught. And their last record, by the way, Hippopotamus, is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, personally... I prefer the run from Woofer through um, Propaganda, which is, I think, my favourite Sparks record, uh, Came Out of My House and Indiscreet. More than I, I prefer that run more than the Marauder years a little bit. But this is still just fantastic. And, and they're one of those bands that I still judge other bands by. Yeah. If Sparks can write these dense little pop symphonies with such fucking brilliant lyrics. I mean, from the off, they did good lyrics. They didn't get better at lyrics. You listen to Girl, Girl from Germany on the mm. first, you know, on Wolf of the... yeah. it's a fucking just, some of those songs are just amazing. Um, you know, if they can write these sort of songs, whenever I sit down at a piano to write a song, I'm not saying I'm thinking of sparks, but because I've heard those songs, they've set a standard in me that I, you know, this is what pop can do. It can it can go this far and it can pack this much in and yet still be so hook laden and wonderful. Mm, um, yeah. This is a brilliant song. It's a brilliant performance. I also love the effects that the BBC are putting on them. Yeah. Those kind of weird traily effects um, that are kind of very psychedelic, very reminiscent of Leroy dancing in fame behind that screen. Mm. <laughs> but um, but for me, this is definitely one of, if not the highlights of the episode. I couldn't love anyone who didn't love Sparks. Mm. I mean the the the, yeah. the effects, the clocks, and everything. That's from the video, isn't it? Yeah, there's little bits of the video sort of blended in, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the Mickey Mouse clock and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, yeah, Ron Mail. I mean, the thing about him at this time was, yeah, he shipped me up as well <laughs> by doing absolutely nothing. But, but, but the way he just looked at you, and you yeah. know, I think it was my age. 
I think if I was a little bit older, it would be like, oh, this is a bit of a laugh, isn't it? Here we are on top of the pops again. But when you're 11, the, uh, the way he looks at the camera, it's yeah. almost as if he's looking at you and saying, what are you doing watching this? This is a bit too grown up for you. Absolutely. He's the man that, that, that your mum drags you away from in a shopping street, tells you not to go near him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or, or like he's looking out the window down the road at the kids. Yeah. But it's not even as if you think, oh, what's he going to do to me? Well, because you know what he's going to do? He's going to do fuck all. He's just going to stand there. <laughs> no, he, this is it. No, but what, what's scary out? What's scary out is, th- is this thought that you get when he looks at you that, shit, does he know me? <laughs> he, he knows yeah. me. What, what you does know, cause he know he's lo- about me? He do- it, it does feel like he's looking right at you. Right at you, nobody else. And, and that's what's so terrifying. Yeah, I mean, the most terrifying thing he ever did was smile in one performance. Yes. Yes, yes. Looking at this now and thinking, well, if I was 11 and watching this, and at some point he'd have actually just stood up, that would have been fucking terrifying. <laughs> that would have been too much. I would have fainted. Because remember, this is the time when all the punk bands were going about, the new wave bands. And as I've mentioned before, Bob Geldof was a prime offender for this. You know, he'd suddenly just be singing and then all of a sudden he'd just stick his face right into the camera. And that used to mm. shit me up, big <laughs> style. And like, if he'd have got that, if he'd have just stood up, and then walk towards the camera, man. I'm going through the fucking back window, mate. Through it. I'm leaving a fucking, you know, an outline of my body. I, I read a thing where Ron was explaining all this, why, why he does that. And mm. he said he was trying to figure out a way of upstaging his brother mm. by, by doing the least mm. possible. You Mission know, accomplished. Like, <laughs> it's amazing. Like, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. this, this minimal upstaging of somebody who's, you know, quite a sort of, he's a proper front man, Russell. You mm. know? Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's pretty and he can dance and he can sing and all of that stuff. But he's upstaged by some bloke who does nothing except, like, you know, look <laughs> at you. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And yeah. um, Sparks, of course, were huge fans of Top of the Pops. Um, so much so that whenever they were touring in the UK and on their way to a gig on a Thursday evening, they were always massively tempted to park up on the way when it got to 25 past seven and just mm. knock on someone's door and ask if they could come in and watch Top of the Pops <laughs> with them. Can you imagine wow. that? Oh, man. They, they that said, was... you know, we'd, we'd worked out that we, we had a one in four chance that any door we knocked on uh, would have Top of the Pops on. Mm. And this was even when they weren't on Top of the Pops. You know, the one, it's like, oh, can, can we see ourselves on Top of the Pops? It's like, can we just watch Top of the Pops with you? <laughs> and I just think, can, can just imagine if them two knocked on your door and you answered it and it, it was sparks. And it'd be like, oh, can we watch Top of the Pops? And it'd be like, well, you can't watch it in the living room because my dad watches Emmerdale Farm. You'll have to come up in my room. And they would be in your fucking room and your, your mum would knock on the door with a tray of cheese cobs and a crescent of crisps. <laughs> it's well up there with Prince knocking on your door with the Jehovah's Witnesses, isn't it? You know? <laughs> oh, it's even better than that. Because they, they, they were um, hugely Anglophile, of course, yeah. but, but also just more broadly Europhile. One thing I always come back to is something that Taylor Parks said about Sparks, which is that they're a straight American band with a gay European aesthetic which at the same yeah. time is reductive and blunt, but it does get to the heart of something true mm. about Sparks, you know? 
And yeah. um, when this record came out, and, and obviously this is their in the, at their most Europhile, um, I didn't, I, I, I hadn't heard this sounded big enough for both of us at, the, at that age. I, they they no. were a brand new thing to me. Obviously, in mm. in retrospect, I've I've uh, discovered a lot about them. Um, to sort of put my cards on the table, uh, I've I've done a, I've done a bit of work for them recently. I I wrote the sleeve notes, a booklet for their best of. It's called Past Tense, and, and by the time people hear this, it will have just come out. Um, which is a real honour, and it was just a real pleasure oh, to go. More adverts, yeah, more adverts, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, listen, I, I get no. I've, I've, I was paid a flat fee. That record can completely flop, and I don't get anything more out of it. But um, mm. yeah, uh, um, it was a, a real pleasure, sort of, just uh, dig back into, into their back catalogue. Never a chore. And the thing with Sparks is, everyone's got their favourite period. Neil mentioned his, but. Um, for me, it's kind of dotted throughout their history. If I look at my favourite albums, mm. they're from various different times. Like they did an album um, in the early noughties called Lil Beethoven, which is this kind of yes. um, synth opera, uh, which is an extraordinary record. It's built around loops and samples and a really clever record. Then go back a little further to the early 90s. They had gratuitous sax and selfless violins, which is very kind mm. of Pet Shop Boysy, And, of course, they are reclaiming um, what was theirs because even though the Pet Shop Boys won't admit it, they, they obviously drew a lot from Sparks. Uh, and yeah. then Number One in Heaven, the Marota album that, we, that we're talking about, that was fantastic. Mm. And from their early run, um, Neil mentioned it in passing, Indiscreet. Indiscreet's the yeah. album, the one album they made with Tony Visconti. And that's kind of... Uh, sort of Charleston and chamber quartet stuff and, and uh, you know, very sort of 1920s, 1930s sounding. And um, it, it was a bit of a, a dead end in some ways because they couldn't really follow it. And they did mm. go into a bit of a dip after that. But as a, mm. as a record itself, I, I absolutely love Indiscreet. But yeah, they, they, they lost their way before this, this Maroda hookup. And uh, Al, you told the story about how they came about with the journalist and all that. And obviously, yeah, they, they loved mm. I Feel Love. Um, because of the sort of futurism of it. And uh, yeah. by getting together with George and Moroda, the album they made was utterly groundbreaking, number one in heaven. Um, I love the mm. fact that it was six tracks long, which was a Moroda thing. Uh, that, yes. that was his established thing. Uh, he did that with Donna Summer as well. His albums, and the tracks were long tracks, extended versions, but there are only six mm. of them on the albums. I, I love that. And yeah. it's just a stunning, I mean, talk about electro disco. It's, it's one of the high points of that genre. But it also, yeah. it brings the art to it uh, in a way that maybe no one else had done before. Um, mm. and, and a lot of critics just didn't get it. Um, it got slammed yeah. everywhere. Um, when I was doing my research for the, um, for, for the booklet, uh, I, I dug up a lot of reviews of it. So Tony Raines at Melody Maker called it pathetic. Oh. Ira Robbins for Trouser Press uh, said that their synth phase was fruitless and uh, in the NME and this is it, you just got it spectacularly wrong Ian Penman uh, argued that um, he said Maroda's production is essentially irrelevant I mean it could not be more relevant could it <laughs> no uh, no but the thing is uh, it was one of those records and you know people go on about everybody who bought the Velvet Underground's first album went on to form bands um, I think a, a whole generation of musicians understood what Sparks has achieved here, right? Because this yeah. era of Sparks, when it's just the two of them, and they're making this clever, arty mm. electro disco with one deadpan keyboardist and one uh, hyperactive singer, that that yeah. was the template. Is that remarkable? Yeah, that's of? the template, huh. right? So you can go through them all: Soft Cell, Yazoo, Associates, Blamange, Pet Shop Boys, Erasure, all of those, and and also any kind of arty new wave act who wanted to embrace 
electronica and disco. So, I mean, Depeche Mode. Depeche Mode admitted that this album was their Bible, they said, right? Yeah. And, and uh, even though it got really bad reviews, um, Russell saw this coming. He, he knew how influential it was going to be. There was an interview in Melody Maker with uh, Harry Doherty, and, uh, and he said, right, and this is so prescient, he said, uh, just wait six months from now and watch all of the new wave synthesizer disco bands which will be popping up and disco music Ooh. becoming very respectable in hip circles. And then somebody else will capitalise on what we've done. And he was right. Mm-hmm. He was so right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. interestingly, in the same interview, Ron praised what he, he saw as the mindlessness of disco. He liked, I think he liked the fact that making a disco record in theory, freed him, because he was a lyricist, freed him from having mm. to write clever, clever lyrics. Didn't stop mm. him, because he yeah. did write clever mm. lyrics. But yeah. he just quite liked the fact that the um, the imperative of disco is to dance. It's not necessarily to, to use your mind. And mm. he also railed against rockism, uh, which, and I think rockism was was basically because disco sucks was only just in the rearview mirror. In fact, it was going on. Nineteen seventy nine is when yeah. the Comiskey Park incident happens, blowing up the disco yes. record. So uh, there's all that in the air, and I, I, I think Ron is fighting the corner uh, against that kind of rockism, uh, which infected the uh, the thinking of critics. And he he said in the same interview, any band that has got a guitarist is just a joke. And this is <laughs> you know only a few years earlier, Sparks were essentially a guitar band, but they'd moved on. And, and, you mm-hmm. know, huge respect to them for that. Um, just one of the greatest singles from one of the greatest albums by one of the greatest bands. Just um, an absolute stunning performance and stunning record. Yeah, and Ron is unerringly correct in his musical judgments over the years. I remember, I remember reading an interview um, with him in, I think it was the early noughties or mid-noughties. And what had really blown his mind in the previous 20 years of music was Public Enemies, Fear of Black Planet. It was his favourite album from right. that period. Whoa. He had never heard any production like the Bon cool. Squad's production on the album. And it totally blew his mind. It really blew his, it blew his mind. And, and you know those photos you occasionally see on Facebook of kind of musical legends meeting up? And they're normally quite yes. predictable ones who you'd expect to know each other. I, th- I think the one I enjoyed the most was a shot of Chuck D with Ron Mayle wow. just talking to each other. It's just an amazing, amazing shot. But, Fuck you know, I want that so much... On the wall. Yeah, so much yes. difference between them two, but both of them sonic adventurists, yeah. intent on not just not challenging people, but but using modern production to create absolutely captivating music, and and Sparks have always done that. But every single one of their performances on Top of the Pops is unforgettable. Yeah, they're all etched in your memory. That this town, you know, getting the swing and that performance, mm. as, as you mentioned, the Hot Pants. It's just unforgettable stuff, and this is another one. So the following week, Beat the Clock dropped one place to number 11. And the follow-up, Tryouts for the Human Race, stalled at number 45 in November of this year. It would be another 15 years before Sparks troubled the UK top 40 when When Do I Get to Sing My Way got to number 38 in October of 1994. But they finally managed to score a US hit in 1983 with Cool Places, recorded by Jane Weedlin of the Go-Go's, who used to be the president of a Sparks fan club.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 